All right, well, we're there in Hebrews chapter number 7, and of course on Wednesday nights we are going through a verse-by-verse study uh, through the book of Hebrews, and tonight we are here in Hebrews chapter number 7. I'd like you to look at verse number 1, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, and I just want you to see this first little phrase just as we get started tonight, and the Bible says here, for this Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an extremely interesting character, intriguing character in the Bible. He's been brought up already several times here in the book of Hebrews. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, we learned of Jesus and his position of a high priest. And then in chapter number 5, if you remember, if you want to flip back to chapter number 5 just real quickly, in verse number 10, Hebrews chapter number 5, in verse number 10, the Bible says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we're told that Jesus is a high priest and he is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's brought up there in Hebrews chapter 5. And then in Hebrews chapter number 6, we see that it's brought up again uh, right at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse number 20. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. The Bible says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that this idea of Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek and the high priestly order of Melchizedek is brought up several times in this chapter. And we've been talking about the fact that Melchizedek is brought up and then the writer of Hebrews feels the need to get sidetracked and explain some things about uh, Melchizedek before he can delve into the subject of Melchizedek. And what we find here in chapter number seven is that he gets into that. He gets into that context. He gets into that uh, teaching here in Hebrews chapter seven and verse number one. Now, just by way of introduction, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, there are, when it comes to Melchizedek, he's, he's a character that is not brought up a lot. He's extremely interesting, extremely intriguing, but he's not brought up a lot in Scripture. And we actually only see him in the book of Genesis, and then about a thousand years later, he's brought up in the book of Psalms, and then about a thousand years after that, he's brought up in the book of Hebrews. So there's not a lot that is said about him, but what is said is extremely interesting. And just kind of by way of introduction, let me explain just a couple of things about Melchizedek or positions about Melchizedek that people take. One position that people take regarding Melchizedek, and some people believe that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And we actually talked about types of Christ on Sunday. If you remember on Sunday morning, we talked about different types of Christ when we were looking at the story of the fiery serpents. But uh, some people believe that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, meaning that he was somebody who represented the Lord Jesus Christ. He was symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was not the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one position that people take. Another position that people take is that Melchizedek was what's theologically referred to as a a Christophany or a theophany. And a theophany or a Christophany, depending on which term you want to use, is pretty much an appearance of God or an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, theophany would be God, Christophany would be specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the Old Testament 
in a visible or perce uh, perceivable way. And of course, in the Old Testament, we have times when God appears in bodily form, and that's uh, very well established. By the way, every time that God appears in bodily form, it's always the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we learned there in, here in Hebrews earlier that he is the express image of God's person. Uh, but some people take the position that Melchizedek is a Christophany, that he is a theophany, that he is a, a, uh, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, you may ask yourself or be wondering, why does it make a difference and why does it matter? Um, if he was a type of Christ, what that would mean is that he was a normal person like anyone else, meaning he was born, he lived his life here on earth, and he died, and he just pictured Christ at uh, particular moments. And I brought up on Sunday morning that, for example, Isaac um, was a type of Christ, or Joseph was a type of Christ. Obviously, they weren't Christ. They were normal people who who were born, lived their entire lives, died, but at certain times in their life, they pictured the uh, or, or symbolized the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if he, Melchizedek, was a Christophany or a Theophany, uh, then that would mean that this individual simply appeared in the Old Testament. He wasn't born, uh, he didn't live a life there, he didn't die uh, he didn't live anywhere or, or have a daily uh, existence. He appears when we see him in Genesis and then disappears after that. Um, and that, that's kind of the, the two main camps, the two main uh, differences. Now, I'll just tell you up front what I believe about it. Uh, and if you can disagree with me if you'd like, that's fine. Um, but my position is that Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is um, what we would call a Christophany or a Theophany. And I'm going to explain to you why I believe that. And I think when you look at it here in the passage, hopefully maybe you'll agree with me regarding that um, if you don't have a position on that or if you've never thought about it. I'd like to point out for you several things here about uh, Melchizedek and uh, who he was. And if you're taking notes tonight, and I do encourage you to take notes, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes. Tonight we're going to answer this question, who is Melchizedek? Who is uh, Melchizedek, and what can we learn about him? And specifically here, because I would say Hebrews chapter 7 is where we have the most description, the, the biggest description of uh, Melchizedek in the Bible. And I'd like you to notice, first of all, we see the position of Melchizedek, the position of Melchizedek. And notice that the Bible highlights for us his position. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 1, for this Melchizedek, and notice what it says, King of Salem. King of Salem. Now, the Bible is telling us here that Melchizedek is the king of this area uh, known as Salem, as we're referred to here as Salem. And I'll just uh, let you know that the area that's being described here as Salem is going to one day be known as Jerusalem or Jerusalem um, is what's being referred to here. And the Bible tells us that he's the king of Salem, he's the king of Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. We're going to see that story here in a little bit. And blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then I just want you to notice this phrase. And after that also king of Salem, which is uh, king of peace. So I want you to notice, first of all, that here's an example of how the Bible will act as its own dictionary, and the Bible will tell us what words mean. We're told here 
that he's king of Salem, and we know that that is a reference to the city that's going to one day be called Jerusalem or Jerusalem. But then we're also told that the word Salem means peace. Salem means peace. So we're told that he is the king of Salem, uh, which is king of peace. Now again, I believe that uh, this is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might ask yourself, well, how can that be if Jesus wasn't physically born uh, till the New Testament? And we'll talk about that, and I'll answer that here in a minute. But let me just, let's just run some verses tonight. So that's going to be very much of a Bible study. There's lots of different things and material that we need to cover, uh, so we'll try to move as quickly as we can. Keep your place there in Hebrews chapter 7, and go with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 9. If you open up your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms, and then right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 9, and look at verse number 6, Isaiah number, chapter 9 and verse 6. So in Hebrews 7, the first thing we're told is that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means he's the king of peace, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Now Isaiah 9, 6 is a very famous messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an Old Testament prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody argues that this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear and pretty well established. Notice what the Bible says about Jesus. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Obviously, so this is a prophecy of his birth. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And then I want you to notice this little phrase, the Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And in, in Hebrews chapter 7, we're told that, uh, that Melchizedek was the King of Peace. Now, no, don't let the word Prince confuse you. Sometimes, you know, we have this... Uh, British monarch or, or you know, uh, medieval monarch mentality, and people think, well, if, if he's the prince of peace, then, uh, then how can he be the king of peace? The word prince just means first. It's the same word that's used with principality. It's the same word that's used, for example, in the school system where there's a principal. It's just the first of the teachers. The principal is a teacher, but he's the first of the teachers. And here we're told that Jesus is the prince of Peace. Later on uh, in Revelation, we're going to see that he's the prince of the kings of the earth. So don't let those terms confuse you. But the point is this, that he is the king of peace or the principality of peace, the prince of peace. We're told that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and uh, which uh, is king of peace. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus is the prince of peace. Look at verse 7, Isaiah 9 and verse 7, of the increase of his government... Notice these words, and peace, there shall be no end. Now I want you to notice this phrase, upon the throne of David. Because Jesus is not only the Prince of Peace, but one day he's going to come to this earth physically, and he's going to reign on this earth, that's known as the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's going to sit, the Bible tells us, here and many other places, on the throne of David. Now, the question is, where is the throne of David, or where will the throne of David be? And of course, we know that it will be in Jerusalem. 
It'll be in Jerusalem where Jesus will reign from. So I want you to see the connections between Melchizedek, who we're told is the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. He's also the king of peace. And Jesus, we're told, is the prince of peace. And he's going to sit upon the throne of David, which is in Jerusalem, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, as the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see that he's the king of peace. And we see that Jesus is the king of peace. They're both the king of Salem uh, or Jerusalem. Uh, go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Notice a second thing here about Melchizedek. Not only is he the king of peace, but the Bible also tells us in verse number 2 that he's the king of righteousness. Notice there in verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave the tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of Righteousness. So the Bible tells us, the Bible is interpreting itself here, and it's telling us that he is the king of righteousness. And again, the word righteousness, the term righteous, is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read this for you from the book of Romans. In fact, if you'd like, I'd like you to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. If you can find the 1 and 2 books, Towards the beginning of the Bible, you've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I'd like you to find Second Chronicles twenty-six. While you turn there, let me read to you from Romans three twenty-two, because the Bible tells us that Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Notice what the Bible says about Jesus regarding righteousness. Romans three twenty-two: Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the righteousness of God is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And that's just one portion of Scripture that really connects the fact that it is the righteousness of Christ that justifies us. It is the righteousness of Christ that declares us just, and His righteousness is by faith of Jesus Christ. So we know that Jesus is the only righteous one. And here we see that Melchizedek is the prince of peace. He's the king of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. We're told that he's the king of righteousness. And Jesus is the one who brings righteousness. And that he lived a righteous life and we live through, we are saved by his righteousness. And then of course we see that it's a reference to the physical location of Jerusalem. Now let me just say this. At the time that, that uh, Melchizedek shows up in the book of Genesis, we're going to go look at that here in a minute, Jerusalem is not inhabited. So the fact that the Bible tells us that he's king of Salem is looking forward to the fact that that city is going to be the city from which the Son of God is going to rule and reign. And of course, the Son of God is going to be physically a descendant, a son of David, because Jerusalem is not a city yet. If you remember uh, when Abraham takes Isaac up on the mount, the way that that, that entire story is foretold, it's, it definitely doesn't seem like they're 
any, they're in the wilderness. They're somewhere where there's no location there. It's not till later on uh, that we see that there's a city there that's not called Jerusalem or Salem. It's called Jebus. And of course, David takes it and makes it Jerusalem. So the fact that Salem is being brought up, it's being brought up, even the city, when we're told that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, even that is prophetic, looking forward to the fact that Jesus will reign from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. But I want you to notice another thing. Not only do we see that he is a king, he's the king of peace, he's the king of righteousness, the Bible also tells us something that's very peculiar, and it is this. You're there in 2 Chronicles 26. Um, keep your finger right there. We're going to come right back to it, but flip back to Hebrews chapter 7 just real quickly because I do want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 1. Not only is he a king, but the Bible tells us he's also a priest. Hebrews 7 and verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, notice these words, priest of the most high God. The Bible tells us that he's the priest of the most high God. Some people who think that this man Melchizedek is just a type or a representation of Christ, they believe that Melchizedek actually was born and lived a life and died. They think that he served as some sort of a, a priest at that time and that he was some sort of a priest of, of, of deities or of, of false deities. But the Bible is clear about the fact that he's the priest of the most high God. Whoever this Melchizedek was, whether you want to believe it was Jesus or not, if it was someone that lived just a normal life, which I don't believe that, I don't think you can get that from the text, but you have to believe that he was the priest of the Most High God, that he served the God of the Bible, that he understood who uh, the I Am, the Jehovah God, uh, was. So we see here that he's not only a king, but we see also that he is a priest, the priest of the Most High God. Now remember, the book of Hebrews was written, it's for all of us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's all profitable for all of us. We can learn from it, and I hope you've been learning a lot as we've been studying the book of Hebrews on Wednesday nights, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But we know that it was primarily written with the intention at the time that it was written by the writer to help first century Jewish believers, to help them transition out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, to help them make sense of the fact uh, how is it that we go from the old into the new, and how do these two correlate with each other? There's also a theme in the book of Hebrews, which is this, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is better than anything they had in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament. Now, for a first century Jew, this would have stood out as very unique because of the fact that we're told that Melchizedek is not only a king, but he's also a priest. He's a king, and he's also a priest. This is unique because in the Bible, and specifically in the Old Testament, there was never a king that was a priest. And there was never a priest that was a king. In fact, there's even a story in the Bible that highlights the fact how this, these two things, these two positions were never to connect. They were never to overlap. And there's a story that highlights that for us. Let's look at it together. It's highlighted in other places as well, but look at 2 Chronicles 26. Look at verse 16. 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16, the Bible says this, But when he, now just to catch up in the context, the he there is a man by the name Uzziah. It's King Uzziah. The Bible says, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up 
to his destruction. And I'm not preaching on this tonight, but let me just say, say this while we're here. This is often the case that happens with people is once things start going well in their lives, you know, they show up to church and their marriage is falling apart. Things aren't going well. They're all humble. They need help. But then we help them. We're here for them. We strengthen them. Then they get a little job. They get a little money. And all of a sudden, their heart gets lifted up. But notice the Bible says, to his destruction. Because... Uh, Pride goeth before destruction is what the Bible says. So here we're told that he was strong, he had some success, and his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God. He broke one of the commandments of, the, of God. What did he do? Notice, and went into the temple. So we have a king here who's filled with pride, and he decides, I'm going to go into the temple of the Lord. Notice, what he wants to do is not a bad thing. He wants to burn incense. He wants to go into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. He wants to burn incense in the right temple to the right God. The problem is, he's the wrong person. He's a king. Look at verse 17. And Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with him fourscore, that's 80 priests of the Lord that were valiant men, and they withstood Uzziah the king, and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah. That word appertain or appertaineth, what they're saying when they say, when they say it appertaineth not, they're saying it is not appropriate for you. You do not have the authority. You do not have the proper position. They said it appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord. But they say, here's who it does appertain to. Here's who does have the authority, but to the priest. They said, look, you can't be here. This is not your place of authority. It appertaineth not unto the Uzziah to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. The priests have been consecrated and set apart to do this task. Notice what they say to him in verse 18. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. They, they said, we understand you're trying to honor God, but you can't honor God by not following God's direction. And God does not want a king to do this. He's given this to the position of a priest. Look at verse 19. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead. This is a miracle that God performs a punishment upon this king for trying to do the job of a priest. The leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, he himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several uh, house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So I want you to notice that here we have a king, who tries to cross into the position of a priest, and the Bible gives him, God gives him leprosy as a result. He goes into the temple that he shouldn't have done. Now he can't be with the people of God at all because of his leprosy. And this story just highlights for us that God wanted to keep these positions separate. The king was separate from the priest. They were not from the priest, they were not to overlap. So it's interesting then when in the New Testament we have this king, Melchizedek who's also a priest. He's king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He's king of 
uh, righteousness. There's this mixture of a king and a priest. Now, to give further evidence of the fact that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, let's go to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Last book in the Bible, should be fairly easy to find. First chapter, Revelation chapter 1. When you get there, do me a uh, favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it and I want you to be able to get to it quickly. We're going to come back to Revelation several times, so please put something there so you can do that quickly. Revelation 1 and verse 5. Here's what's interesting. Under the old covenant, there was no king and priest that wasn't allowed. You tried to do it, God will give you leprosy. But then there's this character, Melchizedek, who's both king and priest. And the Bible seems to indicate, I think the Bible's clear about the fact, that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Revelation 1 and verse 5, the Bible says this, Revelation 1 verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and notice these words, the prince of the kings of the earth. It just means he's the first of the kings. He's the uh, principal of the kings. The prince of the kings of the earth, and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Who are we talking about? Jesus Christ. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice verse 6. And hath made us, don't miss it, kings and priests. He's made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in the Old Testament, this was a big deal. We're not allowed to have a king that's a priest. But then we have Melchizedek, who is both king and priest. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus has made us, under the new covenant and the New Testament, he hath made us kings and priests. Unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see the position of Melchizedek. And I don't know about you, but I, the position of Melchizedek to me seems to indicate that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the fact that he's a king, he's the king of Salem, Jerusalem, he's the king of peace, the prince of peace, he's the king of righteousness, we're saved through the righteousness of Christ, and he's a priest. We see that Jesus makes us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Keep your place there in Revelation, go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. So we see the position of Melchizedek, and then I'd like you to notice secondly tonight, the person of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2, we begin to talk about the individual, Melchizedek, himself as a person. Notice that there are several things that he did not have. Hebrews 7 and verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave the tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And we're gonna, we're gonna, whatever we haven't hit yet, we're going to hit that in a minute. But look at verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. Without father without mother, without descent. The Bible tells us that he had no descendancy. He had not, no, one, no one that he descended. There was no lineage that he came from, without father, without mother, without descent. Now, let me just answer a couple of things here. When the Bible says here, without father, it's obviously not referring to the fact that he doesn't have God the Father, because in the exact same verse, verse 3, notice it says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son. You see the word Son there? Son of God, abide the priest continually. Obviously, if he's the Son of God, then God is his Father. When it says here that he's without father, what that is referring to the fact is that he's without an earthly father. There's no earthly lineage. 
for Melchizedek. There's no father. He's without father. And then, just I'll answer the other question, it says without mother. So then people will say, well, wait a minute. If this is Jesus, then uh, his mother would have been Mary. But please understand, we're talking about Melchizedek, who's an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Melchizedek, first of all, Mary hasn't even been born yet. And Jesus has not been begotten through Mary physically yet. Melchizedek, there was no Virgin Mary for Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't born and lived his life. Melchizedek just appears. He's a Christophany. This is why the Bible says that he's without father and he's without mother. He's without descent. There's no lineage. Now, look, did Jesus have a lineage? Go back to the Gospels. What do we have in Matthew? What do we have in Luke? And Luke, we have lineages of Joseph and of Mary, but not Melchizedek. He's without father, without mother. He just shows up. He just appears. He's without descent. And, and again, to me, this proves that he's a Christophany. He's not. Because look, did Isaac, who's a type of Christ, have a father? Yes, he did. Did he have a mother? Yes, he did. Did he have a descendancy and a lineage? Yes, he did. How about Joseph, who's a type of Christ? Did he have all those things? Yes, he did. But Melchizedek, I don't believe, is just a type of Christ because he shows up in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, and the Bible says when he got there, he was without father, without mother, without descent. He just showed up. And then the Bible says this. So we see that he has no descendancy. But then we also see that he has no beginning or end. Look at it. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Again, I don't see how anybody could look at this and be like, oh, this is just a normal guy that represents Christ. He has no beginning of end or end of life, the Bible tells us. We see that there's no beginning and no end. Did you keep your place in Revelation? Let's just run some verses real quickly. Revelation 1, look at verse 7. Revelation 1, 7, the Bible says this, Behold, Revelation 1, 7, Behold, He, the He here is referring to Jesus. He cometh with clouds. This is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of Him. Even so, amen. Look at verse 8. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. In the Old Testament, when we see prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told that He's from everlasting. So look, look, Jesus was not created the, 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 the moment that he was conceived in the womb of Mary. That was not when he came into existence. He's always existed. He's the Alpha and he's the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying he's the A to the Z. He's the beginning and the ending. He is the Almighty. He is, that, he, is he which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Go to Revelation 22. Look at verse 12. Revelation 22. In verse 12, the Bible says this, And behold, Revelation 22, 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Look at verse 13. This is Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation. He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. This is what the Bible teaches about Jesus, that he's always, he's the second member of the Godhead who has always existed. There is no beginning. There is no end. So when the Bible says about Melchizedek that he's without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, that can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who's also the king of Jerusalem, who's also the king of, uh, of peace, who's also the king of righteousness. You start matching these things up. Look, you get a column going that says, here's all the characteristics of Melchizedek, and you get another column going, here's all the characteristics of Jesus, and it's the same guy. It's the same individual. So we see that he has no descendancy. He has no beginning, and he has no end. But then I want you to notice another thing. Keep your finger right there in Revelation. Go back to Hebrews 7. Look at verse 3. The Bible says here in Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, people who want to argue, and if this is you, I'm not mad at you. You're not my enemy. Honestly, you can have whatever beliefs you want. You know, we are free in Christ, praise God. I don't necessarily want to talk to you about it after service, but I mean, if you really need to, that's fine. But, but here... You know, it says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And people who say that Melchizedek's not Jesus, just a type of, you know, they ignore all that. And then they come to this phrase where it says, but made like unto the Son of God. Now, to me, the fact that it says, the Son of God, it's like, okay, this is Jesus. There's only one, the only begotten of the Father, right? Obviously, we're all children of God, but we're adopted in. We were not begotten. He was made like unto the Son of of God, the Bible says, and here's what people will highlight, and I look, I know, if, when we got saved, we are created, we are begotten, and someone's going to come up to me and try to show me some verse or whatever, but made like unto the Son of God, and the emphasis will be this, like unto, and they'll say, well, here the Bible says he's like unto, so it says he's like unto, so therefore, it doesn't say that he is. And this is the big argument, right? It says he's like unto the Son of God. He's like the Son of God. So it doesn't say he's like the Son of God. Okay, but let me show you something. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Now, Hebrews 7.3 says he's like unto the Son of God. In Revelation 1, we have John who's uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And at the beginning of the book, the first chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, appears to John. Notice John, Revelation 1, look at verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. This is John speaking. He hears a voice speaking to him. He turns around. He's describing for us what happened. He says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw even golden, uh, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Now, let me just say this. Revelation 1, nobody argues this is Jesus. Everybody agrees the person that appears to John on the Isle of Patmos is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what John says about Jesus. Verse 13, And in the midst of seven candlesticks, one, notice these words, like unto the Son of Man. So John says, Hey, I saw someone that was like unto the Son of Man. Son of Man is a phrase that you use about Jesus all over the New Testament, more times than the phrase Son of God. And he said, I saw someone that was like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girded about the past with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass as they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Obviously, he's in his glorified body. He's in this body that is, that is glorified. His head and his hairs are white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass. But... He says that he was like unto the Son of Man, which is what the writer of Hebrews said. That he's, and nobody argues that in Revelation 1, that's Jesus. And then in Hebrews 7.3, the writer of Hebrews says he's like unto the Son of God. So don't let that confuse you 
the fact that it says like unto, is, he's not saying that he was like, but he wasn't. It's the wording that's used in our Bible. And what I, I believe what's going on here is that when the Bible is saying here that he's like unto, he's pretty much saying that's what he looked like. Because keep in mind, when Jesus appears on the Isle of Patmos, he's already ascended. So, and, he's, and he's in a glorified body, so he describes his body, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass. But if somebody were to ask him, like, okay, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet were like undefined brass, but what did he look like? He would have said, he looked like Jesus. He was like unto the Son of God. It'd be like if I was out on the street and just, just by surprise I ran into Donald Trump. Right? And, and I just run to Donald Trump. I'm surprised. And I'm telling somebody like, man, you never believe it. I was just walking down the street and Donald Trump was there. And somebody says, oh, really? What do he look like? And I'd be like, well, he looked like Donald Trump. That's what he's saying. He's on the Isle of Patmos. They're like, what do he look like? Well, he, I mean, he has, his head and his hair were white like wool. It's white as snow. His eyes were as flame of fire. And his feet were like undefined rice. But other than that, he looked like the Son of God. The Son of Man. And Melchizedek, we're told, was made like unto the Son of God. So, we're being told that's what he looked like. Mel so here's what I'm saying. If you would have looked at Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, and you would have looked at Jesus in the Gospels, they would have looked the same. Because it was Jesus. Because he, he you said, what he looked like? He looked like Jesus. That's not saying he wasn't Jesus. We're, we're just telling you, he looked like Jesus. He looked like unto the Son of God. He looked like unto the Son of Man. So we see the person of Melchizedek. We saw the position of Melchizedek. He was a king and he was a priest. And Jesus has made us kings and priests unto God and his father. Then we see the person of Melchizedek. No descendancy, no father, without father, without mother. We're talking about physically. Without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. We see that he's like unto the Son of God. And of course we know that's Jesus. Then I'd like you to notice thirdly tonight, Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We saw the position of Melchizedek. We saw the person of Melchizedek. And thirdly tonight, I'd like you to notice the prominence of Melchizedek. All of that to say this. The main reason that the writer of Hebrews is bringing this up is not just to bring up this cool thing like, hey, let me tell you something. Jesus appeared in the book of Genesis. He brings up the fact that Jesus appeared in the book of Genesis to make a point, and the point is this, that Jesus is better. Notice Hebrews chapter 7, look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, here's the story, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, there's two Old Testament passages that bring up Melchizedek. One is in Genesis one is in Psalm. I'm not going to get through this whole chapter tonight. We're going to look at Melchizedek over two evenings in chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 10 tonight, and we'll look at verses 11 through the end of chapter next week. Next week, we'll look at the Psalms passage. Today, we're going to look at this Genesis passage, because the Bible tells us that Melchizedek, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Now, let's, let's look at the story real quickly in the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 14, if you would. First book in the Bible, Genesis 14. Just to catch you up, Lot is living in Sodom, and a war breaks out where Sodom is taken captive, and as a result, Lot is taken captive 
with Sodom. And young people, here's, here's a lesson for you. Be careful who you hang out with. Because when they get into trouble, they're going to drag you into that trouble too. Lot gets taken with a bunch of Sodomites, and they're ta he's taken captive. And of course, Abraham goes, you can read the whole story, Abraham goes, and he rescues him. And Abraham is coming back from that mission where he rescued the king of Sodom, uh, appears to him, and they have a conversation. And then in Genesis 14 and verse 18, the Bible says this. This is what Hebrews 7 is referring to. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth, I want you to notice what he brings forth, bread and wine. Bread and wine is associated with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think of the Lord's Supper. He brought bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God, verse 19, and he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abraham, and said, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Abraham of the, whole, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. I want you to notice that the Bible emphasizes a couple of things here. First of all, that Abraham met Melchizedek. That Abraham came in contact with Melchizedek. You don't have to turn, you, 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 I know you're there in Genesis, keep your place there. Um, but in Hebrews 7.1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham. Now here's what's interesting. Let's just run a couple of verses real quickly. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 in the New Testament. Keep your place right there in Genesis. Keep your finger right there. We're going to come right back to it. Go to John chapter 8 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 8. Look at verse 58. Now John 8, 58 is a very famous passage about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of John, in the Gospel of John, you have those seven great I am statements that Jesus makes. He makes the, the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and life. Well, here's one of those great I am statements in John chapter 8. John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Very verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. What does that mean? He says, Before Abraham existed, I existed. I am. A testament to the deity of Christ. Why? Because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He is God. Before Abraham was, I am. But here's the context that leads to that great statement. Look at verse 56. John 8, 56. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus, because we tend to focus, when we look at John 8, on this statement, before Abraham was, I am. And great, that's a great statement to focus on. Before Abraham existed, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Great statement. But in the same context, Jesus also says, Abraham saw me. Look at it. Your father Abraham rejoiced to, notice this word, see my day. And, according to Jesus, he saw it and was glad. So we got to ask the question, when did Abraham ever see Jesus? Now, it could be referring to the fact that Abraham died, went to heaven, and saw him there. But that's not, if you look at the context, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. 
And they respond, verse 57, Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? So they take it with this idea that they say, Well, you're not even 50 years old. How, has Abraham, how, how did Abraham see you? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham lived a long time ago. And instead of Jesus saying, Well, he saw me in heaven, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And I believe what Jesus is referring to here is that Abraham rejoiced to see Melchizedek, and when he saw Melchizedek, he saw Jesus. He rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, how can that be? You're not even 50 years old. Well, before Abraham was, I am. I am without father, without mother. I was that man, Melchizedek, without beginning of days or end of life. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, they say the Lord. I want you to notice that there's an emphasis that's being said here. Go back to Genesis if you would. And there's a couple of things that are being brought up. First, a blessing. And secondly, tithing. And let's just look at them quickly. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but we got, we got to look at it. Hebrews 7. Look at verse 1 again. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, look at verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Remember, he's a priest. Now, cons- now consider, look at verse 4, how great this man was. Now, remember, why is this whole thing being brought up? It's being brought up. What's the theme of the book of Hebrews? That Jesus is better. We've already seen that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than any other high priest. He's better than Moses. And now the writer of Hebrews is going to bring up the fact that Jesus is better than Abraham. And to prove that point, he says, Abraham was blessed of Melchizedek. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of all these spoils. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, and verily they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law that it uh, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham, but he whose descent is not counted from them, meaning from the Levitical priesthood, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises, verse 7, and without all contradiction, notice it, the less is blessed of the better. What is he saying? He's saying when Abraham met Melchizedek, Abraham did not reach out his hand to Melchizedek and say, and say, and said, I bless you. No. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. You say, why? Well, the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make is that the less, the person in the lesser position is blessed of the person in a better position. You understand that? Jesus is better than Abraham. Melchizedek was better than Abraham, which is why Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, not vice versa. The point being made is that Jesus is better than Abraham. Melchizedek is better than Abraham, and Jesus is Melchizedek. But there's an application here that I think has been lost in our modern times, 
And I also realize, I think it's been lost even in church life. And I realize that in a church like ours, many of you were not raised in a church culture. And I've learned that when someone's not raised in church, there's a lot of things that need to be overcome because there's some cultural things that maybe they just don't understand and they need to be taught. But one of the things that the Bible emphasizes over and over, it doesn't just explicitly say it, but it's emphasized. If you look at it in the Bible, as you read the Bible, you'll notice that you'll begin to see it. And it's something that's being brought up here, is that the less is blessed of the better. The Bible indicates that there are positions of authority. Now, when we come to human beings, obviously we as human beings are all sinners and we're all equal in in the sense that we're human beings, but in positions of authority, some have a better or higher or more authoritative position than others. And the Bible says that it matters who blesses or doesn't bless. And for example, I'll just give you a real practical example. What do we often call prayer? Don't we call it a blessing? Will you pray a blessing on this, on this meal? You know, I don't think it's right. And look, you can do, say whatever you want. And if, if this applies to you, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. Honestly, I'm just trying to teach you the Bible and help you grow in grace. But you know, if, if I was, let me just put it this way. If I was having dinner with Curtis Hudson, I realize Curtis Hudson is dead. If I was having dinner with Jack Hiles, I realize Jack Hiles is dead. But if I was having dinner with a great man like Jack Hiles or Curtis Hudson, and it was me and you and Curtis Hudson. You know, I wouldn't say, let me pray for the meal. You say, why? Because I'm having dinner with Curtis Hudson. And the less is blessed of the better. And just, you say, well, you're a pastor. Yeah, I'm a pastor, but I'm not Curtis Hudson. I'm no Jack Hiles. I'm going to humble myself and say, let so-and-so. I always think, look, you do whatever you want with it. I always think it's interesting when there's a group of ladies and there's a pastor's wife there and they'll, they'll ask some random lady to pray. Well, why do you do that? Or a pastor is present and they'll ask some random guy to pray. Like, there's three pastors here. You ask an usher to pray? <laughs> Nothing against the ushers, but you know, the Bible teaches that the less is blessed of the better. And look, I'm not saying this because I need you to honor me. I don't care what you do. Honestly, I could not care less. But I do want you to understand this, that there is a principle here. And if you're ever in the presence of a 70-year-old saint who's served God, honor them. Let them bless. Let them bless you. You don't bless them. The, The bless is blessed of the better. That's what the Bible teaches. I don't need you to ask me to pray. Look, I pray enough. I'm not saying this because I, but I am telling you this, is that it's rude when there are people who have higher positions than you or higher authority or have accomplished more in their lives for you to just be like, I'm going to pray for them. I know you're Curtis Hudson. One of the greatest. Okay, okay. What if it was the Apostle Paul? I know you're the Apostle Paul. But let me just pray for this meal. Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Look, I'm just saying that if I was having dinner with somebody who was obviously greater in position than me, I'm going to say, no, you pray. You know, what's funny is that in, in our home, in our Christian home, I'm talking about my family, my extended family. I appreciate my family. They, they've, they've always understood the position of a pastor. And look, I'm the youngest in my family. I'm, I'm the, the baby of the family. But I've always appreciated the fact that obviously my wife does this, but my siblings and, and my parents, and I've never asked them to do this. They've always, around church people, they've always addressed me as pastor. 
You say, wow, just, they have a lot of respect. No, they have a lot of respect for the position I hold. Amen. And what's interesting is that at, at meals at home, my dad will be like, let's ask the pastor to pray. And I'll say, no, dad, you pray. And, you know, in that situation, sometimes I pray, sometimes he prays. But there's this idea that there's respect for authority. There's respect for position. And again, I don't, look, I don't need you to let me pray. I don't care. But what I'm telling you is that in life, and God seems to indicate that in this passage, 2,000, 3,000 years later, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, did you notice that Abraham didn't bless Melchizedek? Because the last is blessed of the better. So we see that there's an authority here regarding blessings. We also see that there's a tithe being given here. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Look at it again, verse 2. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Look at verse 4. Consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth part of the spoils. Look at verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. So not only do we see that Abraham had enough wits about him when he got around Melchizedek to realize, I'm the inferior one here. So I'm not going to try to bless him. I'm going to let him bless me. But we also see that Abraham realized that I need to give this man 10% of my goods, the 10th part. 10% of the income. And let me just say this regarding tithing. Because people today who want to attack tithing, they'll say, oh, tithing is connected to the Old Testament law and it's been done away. A lot of the aspects of the Old Testament law have been done away. And we've learned about that in this very book of Hebrews. But it's interesting to me that in the book of Hebrews, he brings up a story about Abraham tithing before the Mosaic law. Before Moses was ever even born, Abraham tithed. So let me tell you something. Tithing is not connected to the Mosaic law. Abraham and Isaac uh, and Jacob, for sure, and people in the Old Testament did it before Moses. And the Bible teaches us that we should do it after Moses. So it's not connected to the law. If you're going to say, ah, I don't tithe because it's connected to the law, well, then Abraham tithed. So the Bible teaches the concept of tithing. And look, if you don't like that, you know, the Bible says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You ought to just examine your heart. Because if you, I don't like preachers bringing up money. Well, take it up with whoever wrote Hebrews, because he's the one that brought it up. So Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And not only that, but we see that the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? Because Jesus is a high priest of the order of Melchizedek. We see that the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Levi. Look at, look at verse number 5. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi. Who, who are the sons of Levi? The Levites, and Aaron was a son of Levi, and the sons of Aaron are high priests. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people. So the Levites were to take the tithes of the people under the uh, Old Testament law. We know that Abraham tithed before the Old Testament law. But under the Old Testament law, the Levites were to take the tithe according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Notice verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them. 
whose descent is not counted from the Levites, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. Look at verse 9. And as I may so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Do you understand what's being said here? Levi and the Levitical priesthood, who were given the authority to receive tithes, they were in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed. So in the sense, Abraham tithed to uh, Melchizedek, and Abraham was blessed with Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was greater and better than Abraham. But also we see that Levi was in the loins of Abraham. And, as, and, as, and what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham. Levi, the Levitical priesthood, paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek, for he was yet in the loins of his father. The point that's being made is this, that not only is Melchizedek greater and Jesus is better than Abraham, but the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Levi because both priesthoods were allowed to receive tithes, but the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to the order of Melchizedek in Abraham. And what is the point? Again, you may say, well, I don't care about that. But a first century Jew would say, well, then Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham, who's the greatest patriarch. And the order of Melchizedek must be better than the Levitical priesthood that we were handed. Which is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews teaches us this. That Jesus is better. That Jesus is better. We've looked at it throughout this book. We've seen that Jesus is better than prophets. Remember Hebrews 1.1? 1, 1? God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Jesus is better than prophets. We saw that Jesus is better than the angels. Remember Hebrews 1.4, being made so much better than the angels. We saw that Jesus is better than Moses. Remember Hebrews 3.3, 3, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. We saw that Jesus is better than the Sabbath day. Remember Hebrews 4.3, for we which have believed do enter into his rest. Not a day, but to the individual. Uh, we saw that Jesus is a better high priest. Remember he Hebrews 4.14, Seeing then we have a great high priest, which is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We saw that Jesus tonight is better than Abraham, Hebrews 7 4. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth part of the spoils. And we saw that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood, Hebrews 7 9. Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. Here's a takeaway for us as we finish up tonight, and it's this that the New Testament was not an afterthought. You know, the dispensationalists, they'll say, well, God tried the Old Testament, and they kind of really messed it up when they crucified the Son of God. So then he had plan B, which was the New Testament. No, Jesus was always the plan. And Melchizedek, to me, is like, like a character in a book, or for you that are worldly, a character in a movie, who shows up at the beginning of the movie or, and they're kind of insignificant, but then they end up playing a really major role at the end. God, who sees the beginning from the end, just put Melchizedek right there, right at the beginning, who met Abraham on the way. Why? So Jesus could say, your father Abraham, he saw me. 
He saw my day. He saw it and he rejoiced. So they would say, you're not even 50 years old. How, how does Abraham see you? And he would say, before Abraham was, I am. Because Jesus is better. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to just remember and understand these great principles in the, in, in the Bible. And honestly, if we, if, if we don't remember these things, help us just to remember that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than any high priest. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's king and priest, and he's made us kings and priests unto God and our Father. And we love you for it. We thank you for the teaching on Melchizedek. And we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. I just want to remind you a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, I want to remind you to uh, be back.